Welcome to Light for the Journey, a podcast of Russell Memorial United Methodist Church. Each week, we open the scriptures in faith that the timeless truth of God will guide us as we seek to follow in the steps of Jesus. The story of Samson and Delilah is a well-known one. Samson is super strong because he never cuts his hair. He tells Delilah that. She tells other people who then cut Samson's hair and chain him up. Samson pulls down a building. But there's more to the story. In this week's message, Pastor David Cartwright delves into Samson's life to explore more deeply just why losing his hair brings Samson down so that we can avoid a similar fate. As we go to our message today, let's open our hearts and minds to the truth that God would speak to us. I'll invite you to turn in your scripture to the book of Judges, the seventh book of the Bible, to chapter 13, as we continue today our series of visiting the familiar narratives of the Bible that would have become familiar to anyone who grew up going to Sunday school or Bible school or anything like that. And uh, today we come to the person that we know as Samson. I will confess to you when I thought about Samson, I could not resist the temptation to use the sermon title that I did. And I've already been told that at least one, if not more of you, are, are already experiencing a bad hair day. So uh, I can promise you that your bad hair day is nothing like the bad hair day that Samson had many centuries ago. So we're going to start in Judges 13. Uh, we have a good bit of territory to cover, and so I'll try to do that expeditiously. And... Uh, Really, the, the core of what we, where we want to get would be the climax of the Samson narrative, which is in chapter 16. But it's really good to, to understand all of uh, the Samson narrative so that we understand kind of where it fits in the context of Scripture. Um, the book of Judges is a, a book that kind of sits between the Hebrew people coming into the land of promise and the uh, period of time in which they were being served by kings like Saul and David and Solomon and then the divided kingdom. Judges is kind of the in-between time. And as you read through the book of Judges, you will notice a cycle, a cycle of events that happen over and over and over again. They just repeat themselves. And the cycle kind of goes like this. God's people who were covenant people told to live in this certain way in covenant with God consistently fell short of that. They chased after other gods. They failed to be obedient to the laws, the commandments that were set down before them. And when they entered into those, into those seasons of disobedience, God would hand them over to a period of oppression, hardship, being under the thumb of some other people group. Okay? And so they would live for a period under this time of oppression. They would cry out to God and eventually God would send a deliverer to them to lead them out from that period of oppression. And those people whom God raised up were known as judges. Okay? The, the judges of this book of the Bible were not judges in the sense that we usually think of judges. Uh, we think of somebody in a black robe who sits at a bench and makes decisions about uh, one thing or another between people. Uh, in, in at least one case during the judges, it did look like that, but more often the judges were like a military-style leader who was raised up 
or in the case of Samson, who just kind of seems like a bull in a china shop that God uses in a very strange way. But they were just people whom God, they were agents of God's hand to set their people free from that period of oppression. Okay, and so they would be set free, and then after some time they would fall back, and the cycle would start all over again. Samson receives much more attention in this book than really any of the other judges. Gideon comes a somewhat close second, but uh, compared to all the rest of the judges, Samson receives a lot more attention. Uh, and actually, chapter 13, the, the whole chapter there is, is dedicated not to his life, but to his birth, the anticipation of his birth. And so we're going to start reading there. So let's read from verse 1 uh, and going. It says, Now the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord, so that the Lord gave them into the hands of the Philistines for forty years. There was a certain man of Zorah of the family of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had borne no children. So often in the Bible, when you hear that, and, and, you know, and when it speaks of a woman being barren, it's almost like a flag that goes up to say, God is about to do something in the life of this woman. Verse 3, Then the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, now you are barren and have more, borne no children, but you shall conceive and give birth to a son. Now therefore be careful not to drink wine or strong drink or eat anything unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and give birth to a son, and no razor shall come upon his head. For the boy shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to deliver Israel from the hands of the Philistine. And then if you'll just jump down to verse 7, again the angel says, Behold, you shall conceive and give birth to a son, and now you shall not drink wine or strong drink, nor eat anything unclean, for the boy shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. And so the, the, the entirety of Samson's life, even from conception until the day he died, he was destined to be God's tool. Okay? And you don't find that very frequently. That kind of stands out in the Bible, that someone from the very birth, they're, they're told that he is set apart for the hand of God. So you can anticipate that God has great things planned for him. Okay, so this is the vow. The vow is given to him. Usually the Nazarite vow is something that a man would have taken uh, willingly upon himself and for a set period of time. It's quite unusual and, and remarkable that the vow would be for an entire lifetime. But for Samson, that was the case. And that's why even his mother, during the, the, the time of his gestation, uh, was told that she, she shall not. It's like she's observing the vow on his behalf. Okay, so the rest of chapter 13 is dedicated to the, the interaction of the angel of the Lord and Manoah and his wife. And then it gets down, if you'll just look at the last verse of that chapter, uh, verse 25... It kind of sets up uh, Samson's adulthood. It says, The Spirit of the Lord began to stir in him, uh, stir in, stir, excuse me, I can't read right, began to stir him in Mahanadan between Zorah and Eshtaol. Those, those locations will come back to you at the very end of chapter 16. They're like bookmarks to frame Samson's life. We don't know with much detail what it means, what it looked like, that the Spirit of the Lord started to, started to stir in him. But it just tells us that God is starting to move in the life of this man. Okay, So, when we get to chapter 14, 
just hang on because we're moving quickly. Uh, we get to Samson's adulthood. And the first thing we get from Samson is, is kind of telling of his character. Okay? The first words out of his mouth recorded in Scripture is, I saw a woman, go get her for me. Granted, the culture was different then that it, than it is now. Okay, we would have liked a, a narrative that went, you know, hey, my friends and I were at a mixer down in, in Gath, and, and I met this girl, and we really hit it off, and I'd, I'd kind of like to go back and see her and see how we resonate. You know, that would be a 21st century way of thinking about a man and woman. It, it wasn't like that then, but nevertheless, this is what we get out of Philistine. I saw a woman. She's a hottie. Go get her for me. That's the Cartwright paraphrase, but it's... It's pretty accurate. There are some things, that, there are some phrases that you need to pay attention to as you move through. Uh, the, the, uh, he tells his mom and dad, I found this woman, go get her for me. The, she's a Philistine. The, the, the mother and father uh, don't want him to take a Philistine wife. He says, can't you find somebody from your own people? Um, in verse 4, it says, though, however, his father and mother did not know that it was of the Lord, for he, meaning God, was seeking an occasion against the Philistines. And so what you and I have in the scripture is the benefit of what the people in the narrative didn't know. Okay? The writer of the scripture is giving us the backdrop that you couldn't see. It's the theological narrative. What Samson's parents saw was him wanting to go and take a, a wife from the unclean people of the Philistines. The writer is saying, yes, but what God is doing is setting up an occasion, okay? So like God's hand is moving behind this to do something that the people then didn't understand, okay? Um, if you drop down uh, in verse 6, uh, there, there's the, the narrative shifts a little bit. Samson is going along. A young lion comes running toward him. And in verse 6, it says, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily. That's a phrase that's going to be repeated at least a couple of times, okay? The, the, the writers of Scripture don't throw that phrase around carelessly, okay? And so that says something that God, that there are these moments in which God demonstrates God's power in Samson, okay? The Spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily and he, and he tore the young woman apart like he would tear a, a small animal with his hands, okay? So I just want you to see in verse 6 where that phrase is used. Uh, he goes along, the, the lion is dead, he goes where he's going, he comes back, of course, and then you know, he sees the, that there are bees in the dead carcass of the lion, and you're familiar how he took the honey, uh, and, and he didn't tell his mom and dad that he had done this. Um, and so the next thing you know, he goes down, he's in, uh, he's in Philistine territory, they're having a big wedding blowout, and, um, you know, a seven-day blowout, it's feasting, you know, he, Samson's gotten married, and Samson's full of himself, and he tells everybody a riddle, right? He's, and he wagers with them, okay, 30 sets of clothing and garments. Uh, if you don't, if, I'll give you seven days to get the answer right. He's full of himself, and so he gives them the riddle. For three days, they can't figure out what the riddle is. Uh, the Philistine people start to get agitated, and so they go to his wife, and they say, all right, you have to find out what the, what the answer to the riddle is. 
And so she nags him, and if you don't think that's the truth, just read the narrative, until he finally tells her what the answer to the riddle is, and she goes to report it, and they show up on the fourth day and say, oh, hey, we have the answer. And so Samson uh, gets angry, all right? He's like a spoiled kid who can't stand, you know, losing a bet. And so he goes and he kills 30 men of the Philistines, takes their clothing, and then pays off his debt for, for doing that. Uh, for, again, in verse 19, you'll see the, the, the phrase again. It says, The Spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily, and he went down to Ashkelon and killed 30 of the men and took them. And so what we would have just seen with our eyes as the, the, the things that are playing out, the, narr the, the, the narrator is saying, Look, this is, God has raised him up. Like I said earlier, it's like that bull in the china shop that God is using to afflict the Philistines. Okay, so Samson gets angry. He does that. He goes on back about his business. The woman's father takes the woman, gives her to another man uh, to be married. Chapter 15 starts. Samson wants to go back down and see his wife. He goes back down, finds the father, finds out that the father has given the woman to another man. The father tries to pass another daughter off to him. Samson gets angry, and he goes down, and he, uh, that's when he gets the foxes and ties their tails together and sets a torch between them, turns them loose in the grain fields, and it burns up all the crops of the Philistines. Okay? So the Philistines get angry. They want to know who did this and why, and they find out that it was Samson, and they find out why he did it. And so they go, and they find the father and the wife, and they put both of them to death, Samson finds out about it, he gets angry over that, and then he goes down and he slays a whole bunch more of the Philistines. You can see, the, like this, it just kind of escalates the whole thing. So he goes down and he kills a whole bunch of guys, and then he goes into hiding. The Philistines come up, um, the Philistines come up to Judah. The people of Judah say, Hey, what are you doing? We haven't done anything to you. Well, Samson. Samson's the problem, okay? We've come up to get him. So 3,000 guys from Judah go down to where Samson is hiding, and their attitude towards Samson is, what in the world is wrong with you? Don't you know that we are under the hand of the Philistines? Why are you going down and aggravating them? We've come down to bind you and turn you over to them. And so Samson strikes a deal with them. He says, I'll tell you what, I will let you bind me if you, promise, you just promise not to kill me. And so they bargained with him and they said, okay, we won't kill you, but we're going to bind you and, and we'll take you down. So they tie him up with ropes. They lead him down to the Philistines. In verse 14 of chapter 15, once again, you're going to find the statement. It says, when they came to Lehi, the Philistines shouted as they met him, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily so that the ropes that were on his arms were as flax that burned with fire. And there he uh, found the, the jawbone of a donkey, slayed a thousand more of the Philistines. God is using this man in quite remarkable ways to inflict the Philistines. Just as an interesting note, if you look at verses 18 and 19, there in chapter 15, there's a, there's a reflection back that will remind you of something. After, after Samson kills all these people... It says, he became very thirsty, and he called out to the Lord and said, You have given this great deliverance by the hand of your servant, and now shall I die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? He's crying out, Oh my goodness, he brought me out here, and now I'm going to die of thirst. Does it sound like anybody? Yes. 
The Hebrew people who have come out of Egypt and been set free and they get into the wilderness and what do they do? Oh, God has brought us out here and we're just going to die of thirst. Isn't that so bad? What does God do? What did God do for the Hebrew people? He brought water from the rock, right? What does it say in verse 19? But God split the hollow place that is in Lehi so that water came out of it and when he drank, his strength returned and was revived. So easy to see these, uh, you know, these texts that, you know, they resemble one another. You can see one in the other. Okay, so we get to chapter 16. This is really where we want to bear down. Uh, the first four, or excuse me, the first three verses, uh, Samson has gone down to Gaza. He's slept with a the harlot. Uh, they've planned to trap him, but he carries the uh, doors of the gate of the city out to where Hebron is. And then in verse 4, then we get to where Delilah comes in. And so read with me at verse 4. After this it came about that he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek whose name was Delilah. The lords of the Philistine came up to her and said to her, Entice him and see where his great strength lies, and how we may overpower him, that he may bind him to afflict him. So Delilah said to Samson, Please tell me where your great strength is and how you may, bound, you may be bound to afflict you. Quite an interesting question, right? Like, why do you want to know? I've, I've been asked many times, was he so hard-headed that he just was unable to see? Kind of remarkable, isn't it? So anyway, she, you know, the, the Philistines have come to her. We need, to, we need you to find out his secret because we think you can do it. And so she tries to ask him. And so three times he gives her a wrong answer. And so each time she gets the wrong answer, she tries what he has told her, apparently he's fallen asleep with her and she binds him or whatever he's told her to do. And then she shouts at him because she has you know, these Philistines who are secretly waiting in another room. And so she shouts at him, the Philistines are upon you. And he jumps up and he snaps whatever ropes are holding him. And thus she finds out that he has not broken or she has not, he, he has not told her the truth. There's a little nuance of this story that I think is, is at least worth saying. In, in all of these three instances, we are not told by the narrator that Samson actually engages in, in fighting with these men who are lying in wait. Sometimes I think we read that into the text, but the writer doesn't actually tell us that. Okay? Just a side note to keep in your mind as you, as you read. So you get down to verse 15, and we're going to read on from here. And Delilah said to him, how can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? We're going to come back to that. We're going to come back to that. How can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? You have deceived me these three times and have not told me where your great strength is. It came about when she pressed him daily with her words and urged him that his soul was annoyed to death. I told you about the other woman that nagged him, right? You see, it's happening again. So I'm not going to win any points with the women, am I? Oh, well. So he told her all that was in his heart and said to her, A razor has never come on my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If I am shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I will become weak and be like any other man. So Samson, at this point, surrenders the truth. He, he, he caves to pressure and compromises 
his identity in God. Verse 18, when Delilah saw that he had told her all that was in his heart, she sent and called the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up once more, for he has told me all that is in his heart. Then the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought her the money in, in their hands. She made him sleep on her knees and called for a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his hair. If you'll notice the picture that we chose for this week, it's a little bit cartoonish, but it was hard to find one. This one is biblically accurate. You'll find those that have has Delilah being depicted as cutting off his hair. That's not accurate. She didn't do it. She had another man to do it. Okay, where did I leave off? Okay, then she began to afflict him, and his strength left him. In verse 20, she said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had departed from him. That's big. He did not know that the Lord had departed from him. Then the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes, and they brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze chains, and he was a grinder in the prison. That is, grinding grain in the prison. However, the hair of his head began to grow again after it was shaved off. Ask yourself why the writer of the text would include that. There is not one person who does not already know that when you cut hair, it grows back. So why would the narrator go out of his way to make that obvious? It's about more than just hair growing back. If you write in your Bible, you could, beside that verse, write grace or second chances or restoration or redemption or probably a host of other things. It's not just about the hair. It's about God's presence and what the hair symbolized. And the writer is already cluing you in that just because Samson failed, it doesn't mean that Samson will not still be used by God because God is a God of second chances. Verse 23, Now the lords of the Philistines assembled to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon their God and to rejoice, for they said, Our God has given Samson our enemy into our hands. And when the people saw him, they praised their God, for they said, Our God has given our enemy into our hands, even the destroyer of our country, who has slain many of us. It so happened when they were in high spirits that they, called, they said, Call for Samson, that he may amuse us. So they called for Samson from the prison, and he entertained them, and they made him stand between the pillars. Then Samson said to the boy who was holding his hand, Let me feel the pillars on which the house rests, that I may lean against them. Now the house was full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there, and about 3,000 men and women were on the roof looking on while Samson was amusing them. Then Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me just this time, O God, that I may at once be avenged of the Philistines for my two eyes. Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested and braced himself against them, the one with his right hand and the other with his left. And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. And he bent with all his might so that the house fell on the Lord's and all the people who were in it. 
So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he killed in his life. Then his brothers and all his father's household came down, took him, brought him up, and buried him between Zorah and Eshtaol in the tomb of Manoah, his father. Thus he had judged Israel 20 years. See, so there's the other bookend to Samson's life. Okay, that felt fast, I, I understand. A couple of observations from Samson's narrative. First of all, God's grace is deeper than your moral failure. You look at Samson's life, and you might scratch your head and think, God used him? He does kind of come off like a playboy. Selfish, self-centered, careless. God uses all kinds of interesting people. And once again in the Samson narrative, even when he was at the depths of his failure, God brought him back up. God's grace is deeper than any of our failures. We should never allow ourselves to get to a place in life where we think, God won't have anything to do with me. Surely God can't forgive this. God's grace is deeper than any of your failure. There's another thought that may be the one that I really want for us to hear this morning. And that is that your set-apartness is important, and you need to guard it. I realize that set-apartness is probably not a word, but it is for us this morning. You can substitute other words, holy, called. I mean, that's what holiness means, set-apart, claimed and assigned by God for a purpose. That's what Samson was supposed to be. From birth until death, he was set apart for God. His failure was that he, he, he didn't guard it the way he should have. All three of the parts of the Nazarite vow, it's pretty easy to see that he broke sticking his hands in the carcass of a dead lion so that he could get some honey. That was a breaking of the vow. Even though the text doesn't explicitly tell us going down for a seven-day wedding feast, I'm pretty sure that he was partying with the rest of the crowd. And so partaking wine would have been a violation of the, of the vow. He had one part left. One part left. And... By the pressure of another person, he revealed it so that it could be violated. I especially want to talk for a moment to the young people. Anybody is subject to the pressures of other people. But I think so often it, it's really difficult when you're young. Here is Delilah. I told you I was going to revisit this verse. 
How can you say you love me if you won't tell me what I want to know? I almost guarantee that you won't make it very far into adult years, from teenager into your early 20s. If you're in any kind of relationship, you're very likely to hear those words. Oh, how could you say you love me if you won't fill in the blank? Be very careful. Not everyone who speaks to you as if they are speaking from the depths of their heart has your best interest in mind. Please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that everyone who speaks to you as if speaking from the heart is being disingenuous. I'm not saying that. But not, it is not always the case that they're being honest with you, and it is not always the case that they have your best interest in mind. Delilah did not. And you see what happened to Samson. It was his Achilles heel, and it took him down. I think I shared with somebody, I know I shared with somebody recently, I don't remember who it was, it was a casual conversation. I had a, a pretty uh, lively disagreement many years ago with a gentleman over the real source of Samson's strength. Uh, the, the other man was quite convinced that it literally was his hair. And my point of view was, no, it's what the hair represented. God was the source of his power. It was not the hair. I think I have plenty of evidence in the text to back me up, but that's neither here nor there. It's powerful in the text when it's said that he did not know that the Lord had departed from him. He had finally sacrificed everything that represented his set-apartness to God. And whether you are 12 years old or 70 years old or any, any, any time past that or in between that, when you have said yes to Jesus Christ to receive his grace and to walk in his steps, you understand that you are set apart for God's purpose in this world. And that set-apartness is important. It is a powerful source of you being able to be the kind of person that God wants you to be in the world. When we don't protect it, we can end up very much like Samson. Hurt, laid aside, not powerful for God's purposes. Your set-apartness is important. Do everything in your power to protect it. Can we see Christ in here? I think so. Let me preface by saying that I, I don't want to tell you every intention that the biblical writer had. So I'm not saying necessarily that the writer of this text knew that, that there was a foreshadowing of Christ in this. But I think the imagery is at least there. Picture, if you will, Samson's last moments. His eyes are gouged out, okay, inflicted in the body. His hands are stretched out so that he can put his hands upon pillars. Uh, 
in quite the same way that our Lord's hands were stretched out upon a cross. And it's in that moment with hands outstretched that he prayed. The prayer was different. And I by, by no means do I want to tell you that the character of Samson was quite similar to the character of Jesus Christ. They were pretty different. But there's a lot of parallel. In his last moment, Samson prays for redemption. A lot of it was selfish, to avenge me for my eyes. But he prayed for it. Do you remember the prayer of Jesus? The one who with outstretched hands said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. That's grace at work. And then in that moment, with hands outstretched, that person gave their life. And God brought deliverance for his people. It's the same story with Jesus. Our deliverance from the thing that binds us, which is not Philistines, it's our sin. Our deliverance comes by a man who stretched out his hands, prayed for us, and gave his life. And God broke the chains that hold us. Samson is more than just a story of a long-haired man who let his guard down. It's a story of a man who had been called by God who gives us a lot of encouragement. I don't know about you, friends, but I'm thinking if, if God can use Samson, he can use me too. And in the end, it reminds us of just how important it is to remember that we are set apart by God, claimed by him through the blood of Jesus Christ, and sealed for a day of redemption called to be his agent of the gospel in the world. And that's what we celebrate as we come to the table of our Lord. We're glad that you chose to spend this time with us in God's Word. You can catch our worship services online at www.rmumc.net. May the Lord grant you the light of his truth as you journey through this day.